Our reading this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 26, from verse 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. When he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Nemi or Nemster. Well, let's pray. Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in thy law. Open our hearts, Lord, to understand you better. Open our wills to serve you more faithfully. And open our hearts, Lord, to receive you more deeply today. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Simon. I'm one of the ministers here. And I'm delighted to be sharing with you uh, this morning. And over the last few weeks and over the next week or so, we will be continuing our series, Journeying to the Cross. The Last Supper has ended, and Judas the betrayer has gone betraying, and in the shadows the religious authorities like hyenas are circling on their prey. And Jesus departs with the 11 disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, a beautiful place. I've been a number of times at the foot of the Mount of Olives just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And Luke's gospel tells us that this was his custom. This was the place that Jesus often withdrew to. It was a favorite place of his where after a busy day healing and teaching and in dialoguing, he could get away and just be with his friends and away from the crowds, alone with the disciples, able to find rest and peace. But I've wondered this week how often Jesus, when he was in Gethsemane, would have a premonition, would have that prophetic sense that a cold shadow would come upon him because he knew what would await him, his fate in this 
garden. And he knew that from here, he would enter into the very heart of darkness. The Chinese commander Sun Tzu, who wrote a remarkable book called The Art of War. Some of you may have read it. I actually have. And uh, in it, he said, you must choose your battleground and you must get there first. And by doing so, you impose your will upon the enemy. And this was to be the battleground. This was where the first salvos were to be fired off. And Jesus chose it. And in the mystery and the economy of God, Jesus was also imposing his will on the enemy. Not simply that he would be um, a victim of situation and circumstance. No, he was imposing and following through the very will of God that would bring about the salvation of humankind. The Duke of Wellington, in 1814, he was an ambassador in Paris. There was no war at the time with France. And he went and visited uh, what is now Belgium, but it's part of Holland then. And he saw this plain, and he saw a ridge at the end, a place called Waterloo. And he thought, if ever I fight the French, if ever we are met in battle, I'm going to be there on that hill. A year later, Napoleon escaped from exile in Elba, raised an army, and made war. And Wellington got there first. And it was from that place, that strategic place, that he was able to win the day. So Jesus chooses the time and the place. It's his time, and it's on his turf when those opening salvos of the Battle of the Ages commence. And where is the response that he makes here that determines the final outcome? I want to make three short points from the text. And the first is this. I want us to look at Jesus' soul that is oppressed. The oppression of his soul. It says in verse 38 of Matthew 26, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So heavy, so grim, so fierce, so weighty was this foreboding of what was coming that he felt he would die before he died. Jesus held it together at the Last Supper. He tenderly washed his disciples' feet. He lovingly handed them bread and wine. He spoke comforting words of hope and the future. But now the atmosphere has changed and the darkness, like a shroud, descends upon him. It's going to snuff out the light of the world. You see, Jesus knew that those nearest and dearest with him would depart from him when the pressure came and they would deny him. He knew that the wicked schemes of wicked men would soon entangle him. And he knew that the jealous, jealousy and malice of the demonic would be vented upon him and tear his flesh. And he knew the weight of God's justice would need to be satisfied and spent on him 
and he knew that he, the very source, the very creative source of life, would give up life in order to give us life. And he knew the cost of the ransom he must pay for the sins of the world. He knew all this. He knew the mortal combat to death that was coming down on him. But that wasn't the worst of it. He also knew that he who knew no sin would become sin. That we who trust in him might become the righteousness of God. And in that moment at the cross, his father, the lover from all eternity, would turn away. And there would be estrangement from him. And he would cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew what was coming. He saw down that dark tunnel. No wonder he was overwhelmed to the point of death. This place is called Gethsemane. And it's an Aramaic word meaning oil press. It's almost certain that there in the garden there was an oil press. Today it's an ancient olive grove. Olives were grown there. And the olive press was really a bit like a giant's uh, pestle and mortar. Just two giant stones. There were various forms of these, but huge, several feet wide. Normally a flat one, and then another smaller one laid on top, attached to some form of wooden lever, and that would either be rotated by a donkey, or it would have been pressed down by hand. And the grapes from a, uh, and the olives from a wicker basket poured into it, and then they would have been crushed and a channel chiseled in the lower stone, and out of it comes the oil. Garden of Gethsemane, the oil press. And you know, olives actually went through three pressings, and each successive pressing and crushing left more acid in the oil from the pith and the pulp. The first press brought out extra virgin olive oil for cooking and eating. And the second press brought oil for lamps and medicine, and the third was used with other ingredients for soap. And we read of Jesus three times going to pray. Three times pulling away from his disciples, falling to the ground, and seeking his Father and saying, Please, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And each time there is a successive weight pressed down on the Son of Man and the Son of God, crushed, and then crushed again, and then crushed again, and squeezed. And Luke's gospel tells us that out of his forehead, he sweat drops of blood. An actual medical condition. Luke was a medic. He was attentive to these details. And in times of absolute stress and duress, it's possible to sweat blood for capillaries behind the skin to break and for blood to come out of your eyes, your nose, your forehead. We've seen it with weightlifters, haven't we, sometimes pushing extreme weights and their nose starts to bleed. But Christ is taking upon him the sins of the world. He's entering into the heart of darkness and he's dropping sweats of drops, sweat, blood. Just as those olives are pressed and out comes a precious oil, Christ is pressed 
and pressed again and pressed again. And out of him flows love and life for us all. Just look at him here in the garden, oppressed and pressed for us. Just look at him all alone. This Easter, just look at him. His whole body coursed with adrenaline pumping through it, wrapped in anxiety and fear. Was there ever such a hallowed and horrid sight as Christ in Gethsemane? Haunted and yet somehow beautiful. This passage has been called the Magna Carta of Depression. I'm so grateful for it. I don't know about you. I'm sure some here will have known times of great darkness and great despair and anxiety and fear and depression and dread and terror on all sides. Awake in the night while others are sleeping and it seems as if hell is tormenting you. I've known times like that. And I've gone in my prayers at such time to Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane because I know that he knows. He's been there. And he's drank the earthly cup to its lees. He understands and he cares. Churchill once said, I've got nothing to offer you but blood, sweat and tears. But he didn't offer any blood, sweat and tears. He expected the soldiers to. But Jesus offered blood, sweat and tears for us. If you're in a difficult or dark place at the moment, go to him. There, bowed and sweating drops of blood for you and find some comfort. That's the first thing. Look at that beautiful life oppressed. And then secondly, look at Jesus' own needs that are expressed. Verse 40 says, Could you, says to his disciples, couldn't you watch with me one hour? And then 45, it says he went away and then he came back and said, you're still asleep. You're still resting. Three times he went away and prayed and pressed and pressed and pressed and there was no one to help lift the weight, no one to even sit with him as it happened. His own disciples, his nearest and dearest, were fast asleep. Richard Norton Smith, who is a historian of American presidents, says that one of the features that you can trace through many of the presidents in the past was that they often suffered loneliness and isolation. And despite being surrounded by people and security and advisors and so on, he says, he spoke about the crushing sense of personal responsibility. He says, think of what the president is up against and there's no escape and that's lonely. Just think about what Christ was up against and there was no escape but he didn't need to be lonely. But his friends were asleep. Three times Jesus reached out to his disciples and said, just watch and pray. Watch and pray and stay with me. And yet three times he returns and finds them asleep. They were asleep just when he needed them most. He'd never needed them more than then. And there and then they were not there for him. And he's dripping 
sweat mingled with blood under the stress and duress of it all. There's no one to mop his brow. You know, it's the only time, I think, in all the Gospels that we see Jesus vulnerable like this. Needing help. He's asking for help. But no help is coming to him. Could you not watch with me one hour, just an hour? You know, evangelists uh, or evangelicals who are activists often make much of this. Couldn't you watch with me one hour? This is the basis for a quiet time. You should spend an hour a day having a quiet time. The Bible never says that, and that's not what Jesus is saying. The dear Roman Catholics have actually made a liturgical service out of this where they come and spend an hour in benediction, it's called, gazing upon the host that is held in the monstrance and praying in the presence of the sacrament. But that's not what this is all about. Could you not watch with me one hour? Is Jesus expressing his need and just seeking for someone to sit with him? The much-loved American archbishop of a different generation, Fulton Sheen, he says this so beautifully. He says, not for an hour of activity did Jesus plead, but for an hour of companionship. And what an extraordinary thing this is. Not for an hour of our busy giddiness, but for an hour to be with him. And Jesus, we're told, could have called 12 legions of angels. That's like between 40 and 60,000 angels. But that's not what he wanted. He didn't want the presence of angels. He wanted the attentiveness and intimacy of his disciples. What an extraordinary thing. And he still asks us for the same. Not spend an hour reading your Bible, although you should and could and you'd be blessed by it, but spend an hour with me. And here the eternal Son of God in his raw humanity needs the big fisherman's rough, strong hands to hold him and touch him and pray for him and stand with him. There's a need expressed. And then thirdly and lastly, there's his will that is suppressed. Verse 39, Jesus prays, My father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed the same, My father. It's interesting that in the Greek text, this is the only occurrence in the whole of the Gospels where Jesus says, My father. The rest of the time, it's just father, Abba. And then the next day after this is the only time in the Gospels he will say, my God, and call his father God. But there's an intimacy here that we don't see elsewhere. Where he's saying, my father, three times, my, 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 you're mine. And even in the terror, there is a trust. Even in this agony, he's turning to God. The terror and the temptation and the weight of it all would suck the breath from his lungs. But instead, he uses that breath to pray and ask the Father to help. He turns to God. He turns to prayer because there's nowhere else to hide. And he says, if it's possible, take this cup from me. He knew it wasn't. He knew there was no other way. 
He knew from before the foundation of the earth. He was already the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knew it would end here. And yet in his humanity, overwhelmed by this dread, he says, Father, can we come up with something else? Is there another way? And yet there's such a humility here because he leaves it with the Father. There's no demand. He doesn't freak out. He simply turns and says, Father, is there another way? And he sublimates his will in the Father's. Three times he asks, Father, is there another way? And no answer comes. And in the lack of an answer is an answer which is no. I like what C.S. Lewis says on this. It's some of the best thing he ever wrote in his letters to Malcolm, writing about prayer. And he says, for most of us, the prayer in Gethsemane is the only model. He says, it's not the prayer that removes mountains. It's the prayer of agony that seems to go unanswered. It's not unanswered. It is answered, but the will of God is working out. And prayer is not about imposing our will on God. It's about aligning our will with God. And that's what's happening in this prayer. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Are these the greatest words that are ever spoken? Maybe for us, because without these words, we are still in our sin. And it's the reality and the action behind these words that lead to our rescue at Calvary. The destiny of humanity hinges on Jesus' obedience to the will of the Father. And Jesus could have said no. And Jesus could have walked away. And if he did, we would still be under God's judgment and we would still be punished for our sin and we would not be rescued, we would not be saved, we would still be in the darkness and we would be facing an eternity separated from God. But because he says yes to God, who says no to his prayer, we're saved. What wonderful words these are. Not what I want, what you want. You know, ages passed in another garden named Eden. The first man said no to God. God said, you can eat of any of these trees. You can eat of any of them, but don't do that one. Because that one will kill you. But humankind, our first forefather, he's, he wanted what he wanted not what God wanted. He willed to disobey and he took that fruit and ate it and a withering of humanity came upon us. And here in another garden, you can understand scripture in the gardens, two gardens, a tale of two gardens. One where Adam says no to God, one where Jesus says yes to God. One where a man falls, another where a man stands and takes it. And Jesus says yes to God and no to himself, and he drinks the bitter cup, but in so doing, he reverses the curse that came in the first garden. Since Eden's self-denial has been pushed aside for self-fulfillment, 
and self-assertion and selfishness. You do you, me my I. And some even put a kind of biological legitimation on it. They talk about the selfish gene or the evolutionary impulse or the survival of the fittest. It's all about willing. The German philosopher Nietzsche, who I like to call Nietzsche, Nietzsche said, life is simply the will to power and nothing beside. And Nietzsche hated Christianity. He called it a soft, feeble, decadent, unmanly affair. He said Christianity was a will to decline. And he called self-denial a monstrous denial that deformed and destroyed the human. And our culture is so often predicated on self. It's the mark of the first garden. But if we want to be saved, we need to get to that second garden. And Jesus will to submit to the Father, to deny himself, to take up his cross, to lay down his life, to die, to drink the cup of suffering. And he, drinking that cup of suffering, means he can offer us the cup of salvation. Well, let me conclude. About three decades ago, I put together a a PhD proposal on Lord of the Rings. And uh, I wanted to trace all the Christological figures in Lord of the Rings. And though Tolkien says... uh, that it wasn't, you know, intentional and overt uh, to correspond with Christian motifs. It was inevitable that his own devout faith influenced its writing. And all along we see these little cameos, these motifs that are, that are pictures of Christ. And Frodo, of course, is one of them. Anyway, there's an extraordinary scene towards the end of Lord of the Rings when Frodo, having made an arduous journey to the chasm of Mount Doom, going there, as we know, to destroy the ring, the ring of power, and uh, to throw it in the molten lava. There's a crucial moment. He gets right to the edge of the chasm. He's about to throw it in. You, You remember the scene. Sam is there watching. And he says this. He just turns. His demeanor changes. He says, I have come, but I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I will not do this deed. The ring is mine. And then you'll know, Gollum jumps in, bites his finger off, falls in, and it's all sorted. But what if Gollum hadn't have? The story would have ended very differently. And darkness and the demonic and Sauron would have held the day. I remember 40 years ago when I first read that. I remember being stunned by it. I'd got that far, and then Frodo, after all he'd been through, pulls back. He'd set out to save the world, and he'd come so far, and he'd suffered so much, and then at the last minute, he actually fails. And I've read Tolkien on this, on this account, and he says, don't be surprised, we all fail. But I thank God that Jesus didn't. And when push came to shove, and when Jesus found himself in that place, he went through with it, yet not what I want, what you want. And because he did, our sins are forgiven, and heaven is opened up. Amen.